I've never started a woman's or men's retreat with so many ladies before. But it is a delight to be with you. We begin this morning by addressing the Christian man in his prayer closet. If a man is a Christian man, he is a praying man. Please follow this biblical logic with me. The Bible teaches that all Christians have the Spirit of Christ within them. Paul says in Romans 8 9, If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And he tells us in Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God's Son, always produces prayer where he takes up his holy residence. Listen to the text. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, kradzone, the verb there indicates ongoing activity, crying, Abba, Father. There is only one reasonable conclusion we can draw. Every Christian has the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit of Christ causes every believer to go on crying in prayer. Every Christian man is a praying man. Prayer is the life breath of a Christian. Furthermore, every healthy Christian will be praying consistently and perseveringly. Healthy Christians manifest an overall pattern of consistent obedience to the precepts and imperatives of Holy Scripture. A healthy Christian will consistently obey the biblical precepts in particular concerning prayer. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, Philippians 4, 6. Pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. Or, first of all then, I urge you that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Or again, James 4, 8, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Or again, James 5.13, Is any among you suffering? Let him pray. And when you pray, Jesus said, go into your closet and shut the door. Go into that inner sanctum where you're alone and pray to your Father who is in secret and the Father who sees in secret, will repay you. Matthew 6, 6. Healthy Christians pray consistently and perseveringly. Furthermore, vigorous Christians delight in prayer. They relish communion with their God. They revel in His presence. They glory in the privilege of frequent audience with the King of Kings. 
And their sentiments are the sentiments of Asaph expressed in Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but thee? There is none on earth I desire besides thee. My flesh and my heart may faint, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And in verse 28 of the same psalm, As for me, the nearness of my God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge. For a vigorous Christian, for a healthy Christian, for a Christian who has the Holy Spirit residing in his heart, and we know there is no other kind of Christian, the hiding of God's face is spiritual agony. Then he wants to cry out with Job in his distress, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. Job 23 and verse 3. For a believer ever to conclude that God is not hearing his prayers is a heart-wrenching experience. Many of us who are older Christians have been on pilgrimage for a while now have known through the years what it is to empathize deeply with David when he cries in Psalm 30, verses 1 and 2, How long, O Lord, wilt thou forget me forever? How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart, all the day. He's struggling with a God who has hidden his face from him. You see, healthy Christians want to know that God is hearing their cries. But the Bible makes it clear that the lack of integrity in our dealings with God will hinder our prayers and plunge us into that agony of soul where we feel the hidden face of our Heavenly Father. And I want to address you on the subject of the Christian man's integrity before his God with special emphasis upon his integrity before his God in prayer. Would you turn, please, in your Bibles to Psalm 66? And notice as I read verses 16 through 20 in your hearing. I don't know what version you use, but so as not to distract you, And have you wondering what version I'm using? Let me tell you I'm reading this morning from the New American Standard Bible. Psalm 66, verses 16 to 20. Come and hear all who fear God, and I will tell of what He has done for my soul. I cried to Him with my mouth, and He was extolled with my tongue. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. But certainly God has heard. He has given heed to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, who has not turned away my prayer, nor His loving kindness from me. These verses give us the psalmist's testimony of answered prayer. 
And I want briefly, as briefly as I can, to collate our study of this passage under three basic headings. I want you to notice, first of all, an invitation to hear the psalmist's testimony. That is in verse 1 or verse 16. Come and hear all who fear God, and I will tell of what He has done for my soul. God has answered my prayer, and I want you to hear my testimony about that answered prayer. Now, the invitation is given to a particular group of people. It is given to all who fear God, because they are the ones in particular who have a special interest in such a testimony. Many people don't care whether your prayers are answered or not, but if they are God-fearing, then they do care. They do care whether other God-fearers have their prayers answered or not, because they live under His eye, they live in His presence, their greatest concern is His smile, their greatest dread is His frown, and it is a wonderful thing to hear when that great God has heard the prayer of another God-fearer. They believe that God is. They believe that He is the rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. They themselves know the joys of answered prayer. They also know the agonies of God's hidden face. And so when a fellow God-fearer invites them to hear a testimony of answered prayer, they are very happy to respond to that invitation. Answered prayer is always cause for celebration among those who genuinely fear God. Answered prayer should never go unnoticed among those who profess to fear God. It is an awe-inspiring thing when the Creator of the ends of the earth stoops to hear the prayer of a scrawny little sinner like you or like me. But having seen the invitation to hear the psalmist's testimony, notice in the second place the insistence of the psalmist's testimony. Note the vigor with which he insists that God has heard his prayer. Verse 17, He was extolled with my tongue. Verse 19, But certainly God has heard. He has given heed to the voice of my tongue. Verse 20, Blessed be God, who has not turned away my prayer, implying that could have been a possibility, but it hasn't happened, nor His loving kindness from me. Verses 13 and 14 indicate that there was a specific distress from which God, in answer to this psalmist's prayer, had delivered him. Let me pause briefly to underscore a vital principle. And I'm not going to take anything for granted. I'm going to underscore what may be to some of you the obvious, but it's here in the text. There is and there can be a certain knowledge that God has heard and that God is hearing our prayers. Answers to prayer can be identified 
and consciously experience. So we've seen the psalmist's invitation to a testimony of answered prayer. We've seen the insistence of that testimony. He is absolutely certain that God has heard his prayer. Now notice thirdly, the indication of such a testimony to the psalmist's own conscience. Notice how the psalmist, in verse 18, draws a certain conclusion from the reality of answered prayer. Observe what the psalmist has indicated to his own conscience because God has answered his prayer. Verse 18, If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Or as the margin of the New American Standard Bible reads it, If I had regarded wickedness in my heart, the Lord would not have heard me. That's proposition A. Proposition B is in the first part of verse 19. But certainly God has heard me. Now the implied conclusion, what does this indicate to his conscience? I have not regarded iniquity in my heart. Now it's not stated, but it's clearly implied and indicated that the psalmist is self-consciously aware of this reality. The important point to grasp here is that the psalmist knew in his own conscience that he had not been guilty of regarding iniquity in his heart. Had he been so guilty, God would not have heard his prayer. The psalmist manifested integrity in his private prayer life. He was without guile in his prayer closet before God. Now, the psalmist was not a naive man. He knew that not all devotion to God was guileless. He understood very plainly that there is such a thing as hypocrisy. And unfortunately, it is rampant in the Christian church today. Those who honor God with their lips, but their hearts and lives are a living contradiction. The psalmist knew this centuries ago. In fact, in verse 3, he indicates this very reality when he says, Because of the greatness of thy power, thine enemies will give feigned that is, pretended or deceptive obedience to thee. You see, the psalmist knew that some men are simply cowed down by God's mighty power. They know they are no match for God. They know that it would be to their benefit to be on God's side. And so externally, they give him homage with their lips. They give him feigned, pretended obedience. But the psalmist also knew that he himself did not render that kind of pretended homage or mock devotion or feigned obedience 
to his God. He knew. He was aware of this fact. He was self-consciously aware he had not regarded iniquity in his heart. Now, that's the three-point outline of the text. That's the exegesis. But now some important implications press themselves in upon us at this juncture. And the first is this. Believers can be self-consciously certain of their own integrity before God. The Scriptures elsewhere support what we have observed in this psalm only by implication. Believers can know they are people of integrity before God and especially when they go to Him in secret prayer. Notice several examples of this from the pen of David. Very quickly, turn back to Psalm 7. And notice verses 3 through 5 and verses 8 through 10. Psalm 7, first of all, verses 3 through 5. David has been falsely accused of committing certain sins. And he responds in this way, O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is injustice in my hands, if I have rewarded evil to my friend or have plundered him who without cause was my adversary. Now notice, he must be pretty sure of his own integrity and innocence because of what he goes on to say. If I am guilty, I'm sure I'm not, But if I am, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life down to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Notice verse 8. The Lord judges the peoples. Vindicate me, O Lord, according to my righteousness. Now, he's not a man of arrogant self-righteousness here. He's a man who's self-consciously aware of his integrity. Reward me, Lord, vindicate me, Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous, for the righteous God tries the hearts and minds. And David knew God was going to try his heart. David knew God saw not only his external behavior, but his heart. And he says, My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. Notice the language that is even stronger in Psalm 17, where David knows that he is a man of integrity. Psalm 17, verses 1 through 3. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Now, what cause is that? Well, it's my cause, says David. Give heed to my cause cry. Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. Let my judgment come forth from thy presence. Let thine eyes look with equity. Thou hast tried my heart. Thou hast visited me by night. Thou hast tested me. Now notice these amazing words. And dost find Nothing. Now, David wasn't saying that when you search and ransack my heart, Lord, you're not going to find any remaining sin. 
What he was saying was, when you search my heart, you will not find there any evidence of hypocrisy. You will not find any evidence that my cause in prayer before you is not just. You will not find any evidence that when I'm praying to you, I'm praying to you with deceitful lips. You can search me as much as you want. I will pass the test. Verse 6. I have called upon thee. Now notice his confidence because he knows he's praying with integrity. For thou wilt answer me, O God. Incline thine ear to me. Hear my speech. And then just one more passage to support the implication. Psalm 26, verses 1 through 3. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. And I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. That's part of integrity. Examine me, O Lord, and try me. He's not afraid of that test. Test my mind and my heart, for thy loving kindness is before my eyes. He was constrained by the love of God, and I have walked in thy truth. So that's the first implication. It's very plain. Believers can be self-consciously certain of their own integrity before God in prayer. But now the second implication is this. This certain knowledge of my own integrity is consistent with my equally certain knowledge of my own remaining sin. The one does not exclude the other. Now, this is implied in Psalm 66. It's implied in verse 10, where the psalmist points to the need of being refined. The implication is to have impurity removed from his life. It's implied in verses 13 and 14 where he speaks of burnt offerings whose main design was the typical expiation of a person's sin. He implies this in verse 18. If he could have regarded iniquity in his heart, then certainly he is still a sinner with remaining sin. But now we don't need just these hints and deductions and inferences to establish a point when we have plain evidence. You see, the, the man who wrote Psalm 7, Psalm 17, and Psalm 26 also penned Psalm 65, the one before the one we've been considering in detail. And I'd like to point you to the first three verses of that psalm for a moment. Psalm 65, verses 1 through 3. There will be silence before thee and praise in Zion, O God. And to thee the vow will be performed. Not going to make promises to you, Lord, that I don't keep. O thou who dost hear prayer, to thee all men come. Now notice iniquities prevail against me. This is a man who's conscious of being overwhelmed at times with his own remaining sin. As for our transgressions, thou dost forgive them. 
Now notice quickly the things that the psalmist brings together in these three verses. First of all, there is an action of integrity. Verse 1. To thee the vow will be performed. And then there is an assertion of confidence in verse 2. O thou who hearest prayer. You're a prayer hearing God. And then there is an awareness of strong sins. Verse 3a. Iniquities prevail against me. Assurance of sins forgiven. As for our transgressions, thou dost forgive them. If a man is a genuine Christian walking in his integrity like David, he can know that God hears his prayer even though at times he may be overwhelmed with a sense of his own remaining sin. Matthew Henry comments on verse 3a. And by the way, in doing so, he indicates to us a religion of a bygone day that's far too rare in the evangelical church today. He says, Our sins reach to the heavens. Iniquities prevail against us. He's talking about godly people and how they view themselves. They are so numerous, they are so heinous, that when they are set in order before us, we are full of confusion and ready to fall into despair. Our iniquities prevail against us. I have serious questions if a man has ever come under Holy Spirit conviction of sin unless he can relate to that statement. When he knows that almost everything he touches and everything he does is somehow mingled with the stain of his own remaining sin. And yet it's possible to feel that way, to sense your sins going over your head, as the psalmist says in another place, and not cave in under that sense into despair. It is consistent to feel that way and yet have a certain confidence that I am still a child of God walking in my integrity, that God still hears my prayer, and that my sins, as many as they are, are genuinely and thoroughly forgiven. Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, combine two things on this subject that must never be separated. Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. There is a true sense of sins forgiven and it is here combined with a spirit that is without guile, a spirit of integrity. Psalm 32, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Now notice. And, this is inseparable from that, in whose spirit there is no deceit. 
Now, in part, the psalmist being without guile is related to his willingness to thoroughly confess his sin. And for a time in this psalm, David indicates he was not willing to do that. Notice verses 3 and 4. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. After the sin of Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite, David was not left alone by God. He spent almost nine months of terrible inward spiritual agony. God's hand was heavy upon him. He lost weight. He was drained emotionally. He was depressed psychologically. Why? He kept silent about his sin. He refused to make a clean sweep of it before his God. But now when he was ready to do that, he found healing. Notice verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to thee. My iniquity I did not hide. He had been doing it before that. He'd been hiding it. He'd been rationalizing it. And all the while, keeping up the external worship of the old covenant, going through all the motions as a holy man, but hiding sin. Then I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And thou didst forgive the guilt of my sin. And that's what he says in verse 1. What a blessed thing it was when that took place. But of course, the blessedness is known by a man in whose spirit there is no longer any guile or double dealing with God. So, implication one. Believers can be self-consciously certain of their own integrity before God. Implication two. This certain knowledge of one's own integrity is consistent with an equally certain knowledge of my remaining sin. And at times a sense that those sins are great and that they prevail against me. And a third pressing implication is this. We see from all of this how vital it is that we understand clearly what it means to deal with our God in an upright manner and to be people of integrity. You see, without this integrity, my prayers will not be heard. If you're a genuine child of God, even the very idea that your Father in heaven will bar the gates and not hear your prayers and stop His ears to your cry is a very horrifying prospect. And so it's vital that you know what it is to walk with integrity before God. Without the certain knowledge of this integrity, even if maybe I am walking integrity, but I'm not sure whether or not I am, my prayers will lack boldness. They will lack vigor. They will lack consistency at the throne of grace. So the burning questions that beg to be answered are, what is integrity? How can I know that I have it? And Lord willing, tonight at the retreat and tomorrow morning, those questions will be answered more thoroughly. But let me, in just a few minutes that are left to me, make a stab at beginning to answer the first one. 
What is integrity? The best place to begin in answering the question is to ascertain the meaning of the word regard in Psalm 66, verse 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Now, the word regard itself is simply the basic Hebrew word ra'ah. And it means to see, to look at, to view, to observe. In some contexts, it means to look at with grief. In other contexts, it means to look at with delight or special consideration. In fact, it is the word translated in my version, see, in the first part of verse 5 of Psalm 66. Come and see. That's the word. See the works of God. Now the psalmist is not asking us simply with a dull-eyed look to look out upon creation and the works of God. He is urging us rather to pay special attention to those works. This is the basic Hebrew word in Psalm 66 and verse 18. And then let me just read to you another text. I won't have you turn there. Psalm 138, 6. For though the Lord is exalted, yet He regards... There's that same word. He regards. He sees with favor, with delight, with special consideration. He regards the lowly, but the haughty He knows from afar. You see the meaning of the word see or regard in Psalm 66, verse 18? God sees the lowly and the haughty with equally clear vision. But He sees the lowly with delight, and He sees the haughty with disgust. He sees the lowly with an eye of special consideration. He looks at the proud with cool aloofness. So to regard sin in my heart is to look at it there with pleasure. To look at it there without any aversion. To palliate it. To excuse it. To extenuate it. To refuse to own it as sin. That's what David did for almost nine months. To refuse to treat the VIP as the bum that he really is and to give him his eviction notice and try to drive him out of the heart. Now, if the sin you are regarding is sexual lust, young men, then when you're guilty and conscious of that lustful glance, if you're regarding iniquity, you don't cry out to the Lord immediately for fresh cleansing and for fresh grace to mortify and put to death that deed of the flesh. If the sin is spiritual coldness in your heart and you sense it and you're regarding it, then you won't cry to God for grace to melt and break your heart. You won't address the issue of your neglected Bible reading and prayer closet. If the sin, for instance, for a married man here, is pride and arrogance in his family, he may regard it by never humbling himself and asking his wife and his children to forgive him for acting in such a pompous way. If the sin is uncontrolled anger, then he can regard it by inventing all kinds of other names for it. 
excuses for why he is so irritable and short with his spouse or children. It's righteous indignation. It's firmness of character. It's transparent dealing with sin. All of that is to regard sin. If the sin is lack of self-control when you sit down to eat at the table, it can be rationalized and redefined and is being done so in many different ways. And it can be done so well and is being done so well by professing Christians today that they have eliminated the concept of gluttony from the Bible. They do not put a knife to their throat to deal with that. You see, and anyone who presses their conscience about the matter is, of course, a legalist and does not understand that their metabolism is unique and that their thyroid condition is the entire explanation for their obesity. And we could go on and on and on. If the sin is bitterness against a roommate or a fellow church member, that it will be regarded by nurturing it, telling yourself all the reasons why you have a right to remain bitter and why you have a right to stiff-arm that person who keeps trying to break down the barrier and confess their sin to you and close the gap of friendship. No one understands. No one can help. No one has ever been in your shoes. That's to regard the sin of bitterness. If the sin is a loose, gossiping, slandering tongue, you regard it by redefining your talk. You simply said all you said to your friend about another friend because you're concerned that they pray for him. It is simply telling it like it is. You're just more open and transparent than other people. And I'm afraid that in the Christian church we have come to find hundreds if not thousands of ways to regard many different things that the Bible plainly calls sin, to regard them and give them VI treatment, VIP treatment in our hearts. But if we will not deal biblically with known sin, God is not going to hear our prayers. If you have known sin undealt with in your conscience this morning and you go to God in prayer, you are mocking Him. You are dealing with Him deceitfully and unless you are going to Him to confess it, to own it, to name it, to cry for more grace, to turn from it, and to kill it, God will not hear that prayer. Spurgeon has well said, an imperfect petition, God will hear for Christ's sake. But not one which is willfully miswritten by a traitor's hand. You pray that God, throughout the rest of the sessions of the men's retreat, will help us to know what it is to deal with Him in integrity and how we can know that we are dealing with Him in that way. Mike, you come and close us. This on? We are in for a treat at the men's retreat. Um, it's going to be excellent. Thank you very much, Jim. Let's pray, and you can be dismissed. Dear God, thank you so much for the reminder this morning to deal with God and in, to deal with you with integrity in our prayers. God, help us to always be reminded of that. Help us to take a look inside this morning as we have been challenged to not regard sin and wickedness in our hearts. 
God, I just pray that you would be with us as uh, we travel to the men's retreat, that you would keep us safe on the roads, that you would give us a special time there, that we would continue to be challenged by the Word of God. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.